Well, hello and welcome to Deep in Scripture. My name is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. And we're bringing this podcast to you from the Coming Home Network International from our studios. And uh, this is kind of what we call the week in between because uh, I invite my co-worker Jim Anderson to join me uh, in this week in between. We'll try and slip in at least one email, but just a little bit more reflection on this theme that we're following in Deep in Scripture, hard verses. And... Uh, Last week and then next week we'll have uh, another guest that we'll bring in, usually guests from who are members of the Coming Home Network and often guests that have, have appeared on my Journey Home program. Again, this is being sponsored by the Coming Home Network. You can find out more about this program if you go to deepinscripture.com and you can find out more about our work. If you go to chnetwork.org and we'd love to have you connect with us through Facebook, CH Network Facebook page or on Twitter at CH Network. Now what I'd like to do in today's short uh, time together is I'm going to share with you an experience I had with Scripture in the last week or so uh, in which I was in, encountered what I uh, considered a, an example of, of a hard verse. And then after that, Jim, after you get a chance to share some thoughts, I'm going to ask you to address one of the emails we've gotten. And thank you for the emails, all of you that are following this program. And, uh, and just to make sure you're there, Jim, hello. Hello. Hello, good to hello, have everyone. you there, Jim. I'm here. All right. Last week uh, in my morning time, uh, doing what traditionally has been called Lexio Divina, uh, I happened to be, to begin the session in Psalm 62. And it's a familiar psalm, but as I was reading, I came across a verse that made me remember a, a difficult theology that has caused divisions amongst Christians for uh, often during, during not the, the, the length of our 2,000 years of following our Lord Jesus. The end of Psalm 62, the last paragraph says, Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to thee, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For thou dost requite a man according to his work. Now it's that last phrase, thou dost requite a man according to his work. Now, when I read that, what first came to mind um, is, the, is the struggle between faith and works and what works play in our salvation, what works play in salvation history. And as we seek to grow closer to God, how important are our works? And this is an Old Testament summary, if you will, of the understanding of the Jewish people on our re responsibility to God for how we live our lives. And Jim, it would be easy to find many, many verses throughout the Old Testament that would repeat this idea that there's a, a fairly direct relationship between how we live our life and what we should expect from God. Most definitely in the law and the prophets and in the wisdom literature, all are in one concord with this subject. 
And this simple little phrase, for thou dost requite a man according to his work, that phrase can be found in several places in the Psalms. It can be it can found, as you said, Jim, in the Proverbs, in the wisdom mm -hmm. literature, it's in Isaiah 40, very similar. So now given my background, I was brought up Lutheran, eventually uh, an ordained pastor in which I served first as a congregationalist, then as a Presbyterian, and very much influenced by my Calvinist understanding as well as Luther's understanding of works. I would say to a certain extent, Jim, your Methodism and my Calvinism and Lutheranism, you, you were also Lutheran for a time, <laughs> our understanding of works and faith were pretty much the same. Yes, even 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 though our Methodist theology was quite a bit different from both Lutheran and Calvinism, there was this almost reflexive fear of the term works. You just didn't go there. You didn't talk about it. And we assumed that because of their, the reaction that Luther and then Calvin and the other reformers had to what they perceived of the Catholic teaching, that there became this dichotomy. And it led to what I understood as a Calvinist, kind of a plan A, plan B. Plan A was before Christ, in which you, you earned your way into relationship with God. If you were good, you were rewarded. If you were bad, you were separated from God. Heaven and hell had to do with good works. And you essentially earned God's reward. And God, in other words, God was obligated to you through your works. And that's how a verse like this was interpreted, that if you want to get right with God, then your good works obligated God to reward you with goodness. I can think of one psalm where it asks the question, uh, what must I do to get close to God? What must I do to... Um, Psalm 15, O Lord, who shall sojourn in thy tent? Who shall dwell on thy holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth from his heart. In other words, if you do good, you, you God will reward you with heaven. To the extent of, of almost manipulating God, it wasn't out of love for God. It wasn't out of filial fear for God and of his wanting God to be proud of you, it was, hey, if I want to get to heaven, I got to do good. Right, Jim? I mean, that's what it was. Yeah. It, and and it God was owed it like, to you. Yeah. It's more like the idea that there was a contract between you and God. And if you fulfilled all the terms, then God was obliged to fulfill his end of the contract. All right. So I'm reading that. And it's kind of assuming in my mind, although it's not the way I now think as a Catholic, but kind of the baggage bringing with me, oh, that's Old Testament, that's, that's the way it was then, we don't think that way now. Well, it just turned out that as I continued in my morning readings, that I just happened to be reading Second Timothy. Mm -hmm. And I was in chapter four of Second Timothy, and I w was reading in this section where Paul is uh, telling Timothy about his relationship with other Christians. Some of them have been good, some of them have been bad. In fact, I've often said, wouldn't it be bad to have your name go down in eternity, in history, in Scripture, as having been 
not a good friend to Paul. Yeah. And it says there in verse 10, for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful in serving me. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Paul is feeling the loneliness of being locked in prison. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, he's not so much in this verse saying that Demas and Crescens are, have gone to hell and abandoned the faith, but they've, at least in Paul's mind, have abandoned him. And maybe just out of his frustration in terms of his imprisonment and being separated from everyone, but he's struggling. And, and boy, it would be, like I said, it would, it would be difficult to know your, your name goes down in history as someone that um, wasn't a friend of Paul. But then he goes on. This is the verse that um, was interesting to me as I read that morning. Alexander, verse 14, Alexander the coopersmith did me great harm, and the Lord will requite him for his deeds. And there's that phrase again, the Lord will requite him for his deeds. It sounded vaguely familiar. I'd heard that recently. Mm -hmm. That was from the psalm that I had earlier read that morning, Psalm 62. There, the psalmist says, for thou dost requite a man according to his work. And here Paul says, the Lord will requite him for his deeds. Now, there's a similarity, but how similar are they? And so, in the, uh, the, uh, the practice that I would have done back when I was a Protestant minister, I got out my Greek Bible. I wanted to compare. Compare what Paul was saying to what the psalmist said. Now, we know from a study of Scripture that nearly every time that a New Testament author quotes from the Old Testament, he usually is quoting almost word for word from the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, which at least says that the New Testament writers who generally wrote in Greek were usually quoting from the Greek version of the Old Testament. So I got out the Septuagint and looked up first Psalm 62. Now, I think what I'll do is I'll post this on the website in case you want to see it, because I'll read it and it's not going to exactly come across well if I'm reading in Greek and any good scholar will know that I am probably not translating the, or pronounce, pronouncing the Greek correctly. But in Psalm 62, which is listed as Psalm 61 in the Old Testament, the Greek is su apodosis akasto kata ta erga autu. Now, apodosis is the word that comes from apodidomai, which is a common word. That's the word that means render or will reward or give. And it's, it's the word requite. And then the word akasto is to everyone, to everyone. And the word su was you. So it's talking to God. You will requite or reward or render to everyone. And then the word kata is the word according to. And then ta erga autu. We, we're familiar with the word er, uh, erga, uh, ergonomics. Mm -hmm. is from the word works. 
and alto is his. So in this case, he's talking to God. You will render to everyone according to his work. And that's just a direct translation that we see in Psalm 62. Going back to 2 Timothy, in that verse, okay, what was, what was Paul saying? Was he by any chance, at least in his mind, thinking about the psalm? And, the, and Paul had written, the Lord will requite him for his deeds. Looking in the Greek, here's what it says. Apodosis auto ho curios kata ta erga autu. In other words, again, apodosis will render. And instead of you, because he's not talking to God, he's talking about God. So Paul inserted instead of the word for you, he inserted the Lord. The Lord will render to him kata ta erga autu, according to his works. It's almost word for word with the Septuagint. So what's the significance as I thought about that? The point is that Paul, in rendering his judgment for this man who wasn't living according to his Christian faith, he was, he was using a direct quote from the Old Testament as the foundation for this judgment, that God will re-render re a person for how he lives, for his works. Now, let me keep going on with this. That reminded me of another verse, a very well-known verse in Romans chapter 2, verse 6. This is Paul speaking to the Romans, and Paul says, Beginning with verse 5, For by your hard and impenitent heart you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 6, For he will render to every man according to his works. For he will render to every man according to his works. When I looked up in Romans, in the Greek of Romans, chapter 2, verse 6, It reads identical to the Septuagint version of Psalm 62. In other words, Paul was directly quoting the Old Testament doctrine, if you will, on the relationship between our works and God's judgment. I could read it in the Greek, but I can tell you it is a direct translation. The point is, in Romans chapter 2, Paul is going back to the Old Testament to quote from the Old Testament this Old Testament belief, bringing it into the new and not leaving it behind, but quoting it as if it is still valid. He says in Romans 2.6, he will render to every man according to his works. Now, when I was a Calvinist, I had always written this off as this is plan A. In other words, before Christ, so in the beginning of Romans, this is plan A, this is the way it used to be when people were, when God would render to people according to their works. But now after Christ, we are not judged by our works, we are judged by faith alone, to quote Luther and Calvin, not by our works, but by faith alone. Salvation is by grace through faith alone, and not according to our works. And so that's how I explained away the hard verse of Romans 2, 6. The problem is, is that he's directly quoting it 
not just in plan A of Romans 2, but he's quoting it in his letter, one of his last letters that he wrote to the young Bishop Timothy, using it as a foundational judgment on Alexander the coppersmith because of the way he lived, saying that God will requite him according to his works, or as Revised Standard puts it, his deeds. Well, is Paul slipping? Is this just uh, him speaking in anger, that he, if he, we had caught him in a better day, uh, we wouldn't have heard him say that? In other words, he would, have, he would have held that back and not included it in this letter. Well, this is Scripture. The church recognizes that 2 Timothy is Scripture. But let me turn to another verse, another verse that's similar, and that's in Revelations, chapter 22, verse 12. And it says, Behold, I am coming soon. This is Christ speaking. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense to repay everyone for what he has done. Christ is saying in Revelations, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense to repay everyone for what he has done. If I turn to the Greek of Revelations, chapter 22, verse 12, it is a direct quote of Psalm 62. Apodunai akoste hos to ergon iste autun. In other words, he will court everyone according to his works. What is the point? Well, it's a hard verse. How do you interpret it? It depends on your theology, on your tradition. And if you're caught up with trying to place this dichotomy between our faith and our works, then you have to reinterpret the clear reading of these scriptures. Psalm 62, Romans chapter 2, verse 6, 2 Timothy 4, and Revelation 22 all quote the same idea that we will one day be held accountable to God for how we live. And actually, there are many other verses in the New Testament that don't directly quote Psalm 62, but continue the same reality. The point is, our theology goes before the scriptures. And that's what makes some verses hard because they don't fit into our theology. Right. Now, that's why James had to write what he did in James chapter 2 when he was already finding Christians struggling with this very issue. There were people saying, um, I'll show you my life with Christ by my faith, and others will say, I'll show it to my, by my works, by my life. And James writes, What does it profit, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has not works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is ill-clad and in lack of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what does it profit? Verse 17, so faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. How do we handle these hard verses? Well, again, if we understand these verses within the, the complete context, not only of each New Testament book and the New Testament of the entire Old Testament, but within the rule of faith, the tradition that's been handed down to us from Christ through his apostles, 
through the earliest writers all the way down to us that we understand that it isn't an either or, faith or works. This was a dichotomy that the reformers, beginning with Luther and Calvin, uh, unleashed into the world. It wasn't Augustine that made this dichotomy. But we see in the writings of Augustine himself that it's not an either or, it's a both and. It's a both and, the mystery of the both and. And the problem is that Luther and Calvin and reformers after him and those who have followed them have, have made a straw man out of this idea that the Catholic Church teaches that you're saved by your works. Not only has the Catholic Church never taught that, but it's the Catholic Church through the earliest writers of the church, as well as Augustine and Aquinas and on down to today, have recognized that no, we don't manipulate God with our works. We aren't rewarded heaven by how we live. We are rewarded heaven by grace and how we live by that grace. And that's faith is a gift of grace. And anything we do in honor of God is as a result of our willful response to his grace. And just to show you that this is the continuity of our faith, I noticed in the Greek dictionary that I was using to interpret these verses that it referenced the letter of Clement. And if you turn to Clement chapter 34, listen to what Clement said. Now, Clement was one of the earliest popes, the earliest bishops of Rome. He wasn't called a pope, mm -hmm. but he would have been called father by uh, the Christians. And that's where the word pope comes from, papa, father. And in chapter 34, Clement wrote, the good worker receives the bread of his labor with confidence. The lazy and idle do not look their employer in the face. We must be ready to do good for all things come from him. Then verse three, he told us before, behold, the Lord and his reward are before him to render to each according to his work. And this phrase in Clement, to render to each according to his work is nearly word for word with Psalm 62, Romans 2.8, 2 Timothy, and Revelation 22. We see the continuity. And the point is, the scripture reminds us that how we live our life is important. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about rewards in Romans, excuse me, in Matthew 6, that there will be rewards will be rewarded when we stand before God. Not just the entrance into his kingdom, but the mystery of rewards we'll receive in heaven, which we don't know what they'll be, right, Jim? We don't know yet. Right. But they're according to the grace we've received and how we've lived our life in accordance to that grace. That's the con constant continuity of scripture, as well as it is in the teaching of the church. I think one thing, that the reformers, the mistake the reformers made was very back at the beginning when they were interpreting the Old Testament understanding of works. They got it wrong from the beginning because they were looking back and they were their understanding was colored by the, the corrupt understanding that the Pharisees had in the first century of a contract. That wasn't the doctrine of the Old Testament. The doctrine was assuming a filial relationship, a loving father-son relationship. And through that, 
works worked through faith. And uh, but when they begin with a misunderstanding of the original premise, then the farther down the road they go, the farther away from their goal they get. Yeah, to a certain extent, it's always been the problem, and it continues to this day. This, um, the dichotomy is not between faith and works. The dichotomy is between servile fear and filial fear. Right. And servile fear is the, the, the fear of a servant to a master. And the way a servant makes the master reward him is by doing good. And the servant may not give a flying hoot about his master, may not care, may, may hate his master, but knows that if he wants the master to treat him well, he does what the master wants. And so it gives an image of a, of a mean master, of an unfair master. And so you can have this relationship between a master and a slave or a master and a servant, even parents and children, when, when the children and the are the, when the relationship between a parent and a child is based on servile fear, there's no love. There's no caring, there's no intimacy, it's just uh, works and rewards. And if that's the way that you come to Scripture, if that's the way you understand God, as the Pharisees had come to understand the, the entire Old Testament, right. which is why, and I'm stepping out on a limb here, I think that's why, sadly, so many Jewish people today are Jews in name only, but have left God have lost God because the heritage they inherited so often was based on a servile understanding with God. And we certainly see that in Islam. Mm -hmm. There's no love yes. between God and the people of Islam. Right. God is the master. Uh, a Muslim is a slave. That is the way they designate themselves. But even in the Old Testament, we see that mature... Uh, following of God meant love. And we see the, the growth of the understanding of filial fear. In other words, a, a, a son or daughter who so loves their parents that they want to do right in the eyes of the parents so the parents are, are proud of them. They're, not, they're no longer trying to earn the parents' love because they know the parents love them. They're, they're doing love out of gratitude. They're doing service and works. And, you know, it, it would be absurd to think that once my son grew in love of me, then I no longer expect him to obey me. <laughs> you know, once my, love, my son loves me and cares for me and knows that I love him, now I don't expect him to obey me anymore. All I need to know is his love. I don't care how he lives. Absurdity of that. Well, that's the absurdity of the dichotomy between faith and works. By picturing God as a master, as opposed to a father, who is the, is the one way that our Lord Jesus wanted us to understand God as a and father. The, and the sad thing with Luther was he had that servile fear before, yeah. and he wasn't reacting to authentic Catholic teaching. He was reacting to his own misguided understanding of his relationship with God, uh, who some well-meaning and holy confessors tried to bring him back to the center, and um, he couldn't he couldn't hear it. Yeah, the the uh, the um, the message that then Luther conveyed was based on a false understanding and a false proclamation, and it has led to this day. 
-hmm. You see it in chick tracks. You see it in people who do not take the time to understand what the Catholic Church means by the necessity of faith and works because they're one and the same thing. They're just two sides of the same coin. That if we are... And and we need to specify that when we, as Catholics, talk about the necessity of works, we're meaning the necessity of works after regeneration. Uh, After faith comes first, uh, and then after we are regenerated by the grace of Christ and the Holy Spirit, then through Christ's grace, our works can be meritorious. But before faith, before regeneration in Christ, as Isaiah said, all our works are filthy rags. Yeah, maybe just to close this segment, Jim, um, just Ephesians chapter 2, which is the most common verse that's quoted by those that follow Luther and Calvin, they'll want to emphasize this dichotomy. They quote uh, Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not because of worse, lest any man should boast. You know, as if that is addressing the dichotomy, but it's not. What Paul is speaking to in Ephesians 2 is he's speaking to Christians who've been saved out mm-hmm. of their pagan and former ways of life. And he's saying that it, back when you were a pagan and back when you were in that former way of life, God didn't save you because you did good works back then. It wasn't because you were a good person and therefore as a, as a master to a servant, God rewarded you with bringing you out of that into the Christian faith, into the church through baptism. No, he's saying that while you were back then and lost in your sins, he by grace touched you and gave you the gift of faith and then saved you out of that. Not because of your works lest you should boast, but because he loved you. And that's why he says in 1 John, he loved us before we loved him. We love because he first loved us. While we were yet sinners, he loved us. That was the point. And that's the point here. But, but also the point is that it doesn't end there in Ephesians. The whole second half of Ephesians, beginning with chapter 4, is about how they're to live holy lives. Faith and works together. Now we have to live our life in humility and in suffering and in obedience. And we recognize that he will reward us for that. But it isn't salvation that we're rewarded because, because we're not like as if we're earning our way into heaven. We are entering into heaven as a son and a, to a father. And that's the simplest way to say it. And, uh, but because as so many have been indoctrinated to believe the otherwise, it's hard to get people to hear beyond that dichotomy. So let me end there, Jim. We'll, you know, we'll talk more about that another time if we get emails. But what's, with some time remaining, you had an email you wanted to address today. Yes, and I would encourage everyone listening, if you have uh, questions that you want to submit to Deep in Scripture, go to our website and follow the guides, and you can submit questions. Unfortunately, we can't get to all of them, but we do our very best. But I've got one today I want to share with you. This is from Cujo. The parable of Lazarus and the rich man was in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, Was the rich man in hell or purgatory? If he's in hell, do people there love us? And um, what he is referring to is uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, 
19 through 31. For the sake of time, I'm not going, going to read the whole story. Um, suffice to say, there was the rich man and there was the poor man, Lazarus. The poor man suffered, the rich man lived in luxury. They both died. The rich man was, uh, they won't, both uh, went to the place of the dead. The rich man was suffering and the poor man Lazarus was now in the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man talking to Abraham said, I beg you, Father, this is verse 27 and 28. I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Now, there's some question here. Do people in hell care about those who are still living? Um, usually, the understanding is those who are in hell are turned, completely turned in on themselves. Uh, they don't care about anybody but themselves. They're not even any, aware of anyone but themselves now. Now, some people have taken the different translations and say, yes, he's in hell, because the translation I read says uh, the rich man descended into hell. Well, the Greek is Hades. And before the resurrection of Christ, both Lazarus and the rich man were in Hades, the place of the dead, Sheol. And so the question is, is the rich man if he's not in damned, is he in purgatory? Are these the flames of purgatory? And I did some looking around and it's really, we're not totally certain. Augustine was equivocal about it. He couldn't say one way or the other. He wouldn't say that the rich man was damned but he wasn't certain if he was in purgatory. And yes, during Augustine's time, there was a doctrine of purgatory. Uh, St. John Chrysostom, in one of his sermons, said he was in hell, as um, does St. Thomas Aquinas. But other authors, including Pope Benedict XVI, uh, suggest that he might have been in purgatory, because how can the damned care for those who are still living. So it is quite um, uh, possible for a Catholic to say that this is purgatory, but they have to keep in mind the church hasn't really defined the position on this. And, and a good point of this, again, from the perspective of a hard verse is, you know, apart from the church, how do you interpret it? Right. And, uh, you know, I remember going through this verse in seminary. Uh, I went to a, a non-denominational seminary where we had seminarians from 46 different denominations and we would sit and argue about scripture. And this was one of them, mm -hmm. you know, about can a person uh, be saved out of hell once they die? Uh, and and there's a fine, you know, what point is the final judgment? Do they get a second chance? Uh, even when the interpretation of the Apostles' Creed when we say he was crucified, died, and buried, descended into hell. That's one translation. And uh, did Jesus go to hell? Did he, or did he but go the to... Greek, the Greek in the original Greek Apostles' Creed is Hades. Right. It's, it's come, in fact, 
the ideas from this passage and mm-hmm. and uh, I think a passage in one of the letters of Peter that talked about uh, Jesus descending to the dead. Uh, I can mm-hmm. get it right now. So how do you interpret this passage? And, and one could say, as you said, Jim, that there's there's confusion here throughout history, theological history. So what does one do if you're a pastor uh, from a pulpit? And that's why the church recognizes that it isn't left up to us individually to try and decide, right. is that we, we interpret Scripture from within the boundaries of our faith, mm-hmm. the rule of faith, as it's called. And we so, also, go ahead, we also need to keep in mind that this fine point about this, if you can call it a parable, there are some who say this is not a parable because Jesus uses a personal name, and usually personal names aren't used in parables. And interestingly enough, there was a Lazarus who came back from the dead. Right. Uh, so Lazarus may have told Jesus what had happened. Uh, but. Um, but this is not the actual point of the story. It is about uh, the resurrection and those who will listen. And it's interesting, um, Abraham says, they wouldn't listen to the prophets and Moses. They certainly won't listen to to anyone who comes back from the dead. Well, who came back from the dead in that instance was Lazarus and what did the Pharisees and the, uh, the elders in the temple want to do, not only to Jesus, but to Lazarus? They wanted them both dead. So he came back from the dead, and they didn't listen. Yeah, it might be that Jesus was basing this on a story that was common amongst the rabbis. and or So, so on the one hand, that, that little point is, was, was he meaning to speak theology? But again, the idea is, what has been the tradition from the very beginning. And the idea of purgatory, the, the term, we don't even know when it developed over the centuries, mm-hmm. but there was always the idea that only those that are sent to hell are those that choose to turn from God, are so inward, as you said, Jim, that they don't right. want to be with God. They reject God, they die in mortal sin, as it says at the end of First John chapter five. and. You know, then as C.S. Lewis so clearly portrays in The Great Divorce, you know, they really have no desire except their own selves and their own selfishness, and uh, and they've made hell for themselves. But those that otherwise die by grace uh, will enter into the presence of the beatific vision. But to enter into the beatific vision, we need to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, our Lord says in the Sermon on the Mount. And so, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, there'll be a purging. In other words, all that's left that has stained our soul as a result of sin, not sin itself, but the result of that sin, the temporal aspect of that sin that remains, that as tarnished gardens will be purged, will be uh, as the prophets in the Old Testament said, will be whiter than will be made whiter than snow. Our sins, the effect of our sins, will be made whiter than snow, and then we'll enter into the presence of God. And so, if anything, purgatory is the mudroom on the outside of heaven right. that uh, we can put away our dirty galoshes and our dirty clothes, so we can put on heavenly garments and enter into the presence of God. 
wipe your feet before you enter the mansion. All right, thanks, Jim. I hope you enjoyed this little time with us today. Uh, we'll, next week, we'll have uh, another guest. I forget who our guest is, I'm sorry. I should have prepared ahead of time. Go to the website and you can find out who our guest, I think it's Jeff Cavins. Kimberly Hahn is our guest. For, oh yeah, Jeff Cavins is in three weeks. So it'll be Kimberly Hahn and uh, she'll join us and then Jim will join me in two weeks and then Jeff Cavins. And again, if you want more information about the program, go to chnetwork.org or deepinscripture.com. Thank you for joining us. God bless you. Look forward to being with you again next week.